ask that you would uh, join me in one more prayer, a brief one, uh, for entering our time in Scripture this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Let's do that. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, we're not left in the dark with regard to your will. Uh, give us hearts to yield to your will, not to just understand it intellectually, which we need to do, but um, that our hearts would grasp it. And we need your grace for that, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with us to the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible. Um, certainly not least, perhaps least understood, I don't know, maybe most debated. Um, and uh, we might, for at least chapters 2 and 3, be spared with some of the major controversies because we're dealing with a little bit more understandable ground. And then once we hit chapter 4 and forward, um, some of y'all are going to have to change your mind, all right? No, it just... We'll try our best, okay? We're going to try our best uh, to work through that stuff. It's thick. But here we have Christ's letters to the churches. And I think it's virtually impossible to read the book of Revelation without the question ringing in our minds, will I be ready for the end? In fact, I think that that's the question you're supposed to be asking yourself as you read through Revelation, the Revelation to John. And that's part of the blessing of reading it and keeping it, is the assurance that no matter how the world ends, we're ready for it. But how are we supposed to be ready for it? That's the question, right? So how are we supposed to be ready for it? Some people take the make for the hills approach. Some people take the, we need to interpret the Bible through the United States, some United States uh, newspaper, and then try to discern what's happening next. I think the truth is to be ready for the end, we need to be ready for the end Uh, the way every other book of the Bible prepares us to be ready for the end. And that is to do what God says. That's it. Not figure out who the next politician is going to be, right? Not try to figure out which nation is supposed to attack which nation at which time. Do what God says to do. That is the goal of the Bible. And in keeping with that, that is the goal of Revelation, to prepare us for the end by doing what Jesus says. Not just on an individual basis, that you personally are ready for the end, but that we as a church are ready for the end. We're supposed to think this through as a body. Is our church ready? As a church, do we do what Jesus says? And that's why these seven letters to these seven churches are important for all churches in all places and all times. Now, every church has a story. In these seven letters, we're going to see relevance to us through these ancient churches, these churches that were birthed pretty much right away after Jesus' uh, departure. And we're going to see in their story our story. We're going to see in their situation hints toward how we live in our situation, and that's great. And so we're going to take these churches one at a time, and today we're going to do Ephesus. Now here's the background to that church in Ephesus. They're in an important city. It's a big city. It's a wealthy city, a coastal city, uh, lots of worldly importance. In that sense, it's a daunting city to to live there. They have wealth, they have learning, they have tourism, they have uh, internationally a famous temple of Artemis, or the Romans would call that goddess Diana. And uh, if you look up Diana or Artemis, 
it's like well, she was in charge of uh, hunting. She was in charge of the wilderness. She was in charge of childbirth. She was in charge of, it was like she got all the leftovers. I don't know. Like, so is that important? You know, you have the God of war and the God of this, and then all the leftovers, Diana. Uh, and so Ephesus had this huge temple. If you wanted to go and sacrifice or spend some special time in that temple and that shrine asking for childbirth or asking for help securing food or asking for help with camping. I don't know what you did in the wilderness then, but uh, you would need Diana's help and you would go to Ephesus if you wanted her special attention, apparently. And so because of that, Ephesus was not some podunk town off on on the trail. In fact, the reason why uh, many commentators say the reason why Ephesus is first is because the letter would hit Ephesus first because it's right there on the coast and then these other churches go in geographical order of where the book of Revelation would be taken from one uh, city to the next. So Ephesus is not first in terms of importance, uh, worldly, in a worldly sense probably, uh, but it's also geographically first. And so you can, this book of Revelation, we're reminded this is real people in real situations receiving a real letter and they would stand up and read this to them to encourage them to endure and to make it. They had this impressive library that attracted tourists. Of course, with all that tourism and all that impressive learning, there was wealth, there was money, and Ephesus was a center for occult practices, of course, in keeping with that uh, important to them temple, to this uh, false god. So the question that they're confronted with is the same question we're confronted with, Will we make it as a church? Will we make it as a church? What does it take for a church to make it, to endure? Will we endure? The first thing we're reminded of as we look at this, we're going to be in chapter 2, 1 through 7. Chapter 2, 1 through 7. That's the letter to the church at Ephesus, in Ephesus. The first thing we see right there in the first couple verses there is that, again, we're reminded of what we saw last week in that vision that ended chapter 1. Jesus wields the authority over his churches. And on one level, we're like, well, yeah, duh. Well, well, not really. Because when churches go off the rails, that's exactly where they go off the rails. Whatever the particular issue was, the church was rampant with a particular sin, the leadership failed, the leader turned into a bully. That really wasn't the issue. Somewhere along the way, they weren't letting Jesus command that church anymore. And so we see that right off the bat, channeling that vision that we saw last week to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. We'll just pause there because I just wanted to tie that first phrase of verse 2 to the whole verse 1. He is the one that isn't guessing, what are these lampstands up to? Oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Oh, it's flickering. He holds them in his right hand, which speaks to his sovereignty, And everything that happens in the church, Jesus knows it. The motivations between what someone does in the church, behind what somebody does in the church, Jesus knows it. Closed session meetings, whether they be elders meetings or deacons meetings or counseling sessions, Jesus sees it. He's not up there guessing. He's not wandering around hoping. He is in charge of his church's. And so I want to remind you of this is channeling that previous vision that we saw last 
week, and maybe you weren't here, maybe you were here, but I think we all need the refresher. That's why the intro starts with, hey, remember this grand vision I had that scared me half to death of Jesus walking among the lampstands? That's the one giving this message to Ephesus. So before we dive into the details of that letter, let's be reminded of the one who is giving the message to that church. And it's not a surfboard holding, glimmer in his teeth, soft Jesus. He is a Jesus that if you saw him with this vision, in this vision that John had, you would fall on the floor. It's channeled from Daniel 10. In Daniel 10, Daniel is with a group of guys and he sees this vision and describes it with many of the same details that John describes here. So John's vision is a reiteration of Daniel's vision from Daniel 10. And Daniel says that the men that were with him couldn't see what he saw. And you would think, they weren't able to see it, so all those other guys were like, huh, why is Daniel trembling? They ran and hid themselves. When is the last time you were so scared you ran and found a spot to hide and we weren't playing hide and seek? You were scared to death. So Daniel's left by himself. Thanks, guys. They don't even see what he's seeing and they left. They fled to hide. And then Daniel said, he said this, so I was left alone to see the vision and no strength was left in me. And then again, in a, a couple lines later, he says, I retained no strength It's like the strength that you have just to be able to stand is sapped out of you. He says, my splendor was changed to ruin. In other words, my normal, like maybe happy self went to like a grotesque on the the doorstep of death look on my face. He fell down when he heard the voice and was trembling on his hands and knees. Daniel has stood up to kings. He slept with lions. His friends were thrown in a furnace and they didn't live. Is this like a scaredy cat walking around? I don't think so. And this full-grown man who is a prophet, who's been given all authority in the kingdom except for the king himself, is on his hands and knees shaking like he has some kind of condition. And then the angel said to him, Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. This scene of terror ends up in a tender moment and uh, then it says Daniel stood up oh all better now he stood up trembling still so even though Jesus comes to us tenderly he's still the terrifying Jesus and if that takes a while to compute for you just go home and wrestle with that if he's going to be an approachable Jesus, I need, to be, I need him to be a wimpy, soft Jesus that I could go skateboarding with. Or he's this big, scary Jesus, and then I can't approach him, I'm not going to pray to him. Both of those are error. He is sovereign, commanding, trembling-inducing Jesus, and we have a relationship with him. The encouragement is that he's for the churches. So he has a word to give to the churches, and we're supposed to hear that word because Jesus Christ is in charge. Not elders, not members, not the people that got here first, not the founding people, not the new people either. The budget doesn't control the church. Politics don't control the church. Jesus controls the church. What does he say? We do that. 
You would hope that would just be simple, but it's not because our hearts want to veer off into other lanes. We want to do what we want to do, especially when we live near a huge city that is full of wickedness. We can easily say, well, I'm not that wicked. I don't worship at the temple of Diana, so at least I have that. So then I can kind of compromise over here. You can see the pressure that is familiar to any of us, no matter where we live. So Jesus is the one who commands his churches. And thankfully, here for Ephesus, when Jesus gives his words, gives his instructions to them, uh, he has some things that are positive. He doesn't only give corrections, he gives some commendations. And uh, I don't want us to lose those commendations in the thick of the corrections. Somebody has approached you in the past and they say, hey, maybe it's a job review. You know, maybe your teacher pulled you aside and at school or something like that. Maybe your parents pulled you aside and like, hey, you're doing this really well, but I need you to fix this. And all you remember is the negative, oh, I need to fix this. Yeah, but there's positive. There's positive. And don't let that get crowded out by the negative. So let's look at those first. He says in verses 2 to 3, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I mean, that's great stuff, right? That is encouraging stuff. It looks at first like he's commending them for a bunch of things, many things. I think if we look at it more carefully, he's really commending them for one main thing, one primary thing. It seems to me like technically he's giving them seven commendations, their works. You can follow along in verses 2 and 3. Their works, their toil, their patient endurance, and then discerning the false teachers and not tolerating them. That's the biggest piece in the middle, right? And then enduring patiently. Bearing up for my name's sake, and then not growing weary. There's seven. Now I think the first and last of the seven are the same. The second and sixth are the same. Right? The third and fifth are the same, and then and then the middle stands out by itself. So he starts with works and ends by you didn't grow weary. And that, that's toil, right? You're out there, you're working hard. Everybody can work hard at any job for at least thirty seconds. It's when it's an eight-hour shift, and your eighth hour, you're still cranking hard. That's a hard worker, not the guy that just works real hard for one hour and then complains for seven. That's not a hard worker. So he's saying works, and he pairs that with the last thing that he says, you didn't grow weary. Then he says toil, and then he says bearing up for my name's sake, not caving underneath the, the, the heaviness of the toil. And then he says patient endurance. Then he says enduring patiently, okay? That means there's this, it's like a sandwich, and it's like bread, bread, lettuce, lettuce, tomato, tomato, and then a meat in the middle, okay? And what's the meat in the middle? How are they enduring patiently? How are they toiling? What are they enduring? What are they doing in their endurance? Well, they're discerning false teachers and not tolerating them. That's, that's the crux of the issue. That's the, the middle of the sandwich. He says... You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So they, they don't just, anybody who has a dynamic voice, 
Wow, that preacher was so good. He was so good. Now, I struggle with this, but listen, I would rather be boring and true than exciting and shallow. Right? You don't need to get pumped up. You could do it, yeah. And then you go home driving like, oh, man. That's not what you need. That might be what we want sometimes. You might come in here sometimes like, ah, the sermons are kind of remind me of lectures. I don't know. Learn and test it. Now, messages have to be testable. This is why it's ridiculous when speakers get up and it's like, I had this dream. How do you test that? How do you test that? I'm going to take your dream. I'm going to take your vision. I'm going to take the main point that you're saying, if you even have one preacher, and I'm going to test it according to the one who walks among the lampstands. Did Jesus say that? Are you contradicting what Jesus has said? Because if you are, shut up. I don't care what your degrees are. I don't care how many seminaries you went to, how big the conferences are, or how big your church is. If you're not saying what Jesus said, you are not to be listened to. And one of the reasons why I want to give y'all robust make you think sermons is so that if I die or something else happens to me, you're able to test somebody else. And I want you to test me. If I get something wrong or if I go astray, the church is the one that's supposed to test the apostles. You shouldn't have to just call seminary professors and have them come over. Seminary professors should be asking the churches to test them. Jesus doesn't walk around among seven lampstands that are seminaries. He walks among seven lampstands that are churches, and it is the church's responsibility to test so-called preachers. How do you do that if you don't know what he said? This is why I'm saying you can't read the book of Revelation without the Old Testament in your other hand. If you don't know the Old Testament, you don't know what John is saying, and you can't test what anybody's saying. You can't test the teacher if you don't have something to test them against. And what we test teaching against is scripture. It's not just that they tested them and found them to be false, but they're too scared to say anything. He says, you've tested them. They call themselves apostles, maybe not the core 12, but there was kind of an outer ring of of apostles. And the easy test is they don't teach in accordance with the apostolic teaching. Therefore, they've been found to be false. And... The, re- the way he started out with it is by saying, you cannot bear with those who are evil. Um, it's the same word that he uses when he said they're bearing up for my name's sake. It's to like carry a load. And they're carrying a load as a church. They're carrying the load of what it means to be a lampstand in a dark place. And that is a load. And it is difficult. And it, we could be made weary, but we endure with patience, bearing that load, but when they met the false teachers, discovered these, some of these guys, they're not teaching right. They're like, we're not carrying that. We already have a load to carry without having to carry all this nonsense. And Jesus doesn't go, you're a little harsh on them. Hey, everybody gets things wrong sometimes. He's like, no, you didn't put up with it. And for that, I commend you. Loving church doesn't mean soft church. If somebody's wrong, they're wrong. Now, some things... We're not, we don't have total clarity on, okay? As we're going to be reminded over and over again, going through the book of Revelation. I don't have everything figured out. We don't know the answer to everything, but some things are really clear. Some things are really clear. 
When someone comes alongside and gives you another word that's different than the gospel we've been given, it is anathema. It is a curse. So to retain the blessing that we're promised in verse 3, chapter 1, blesses the one who reads these words of prophecy out loud, bless those who hear and keep what is written in it. What's the opposite of a blessing? It's a curse. And that's what anathema means. We are supposed to be a doctrinal church. The first red flag, walking into a church, if you ever move away and you're unable to attend CFC, I hope in your move, the first thing you research is what church is there. That's more important than your job, your retirement plan, whether there's a nearby lake for your boat. What church is there? And the, one of the first red flags you'll see is that we're not really a doctrinal church. What do you guys believe? You know, we don't post that. Because it's whatever. That is uh, jargon that I'm going to interpret for you, okay? That's the false. Here's what the truth that lies behind that. If we're too truthful, we'll scare off people who aren't ready for truth yet, and then we won't have behinds in the seats. And if we don't have behinds in the seats, people aren't going to give. And if people don't give, I can't have my things. That's that pastor and that leadership. Their bar is attendance. Their bottom line is money. Even if they seem great. And the, and the worship team rocked out. Wow, they could, they could cut a CD. They probably will. Why do you think? Money. I'm not saying cutting a CD. The only reason why you would do that is for money. But that kind of church, that's why they would do that. Because Christ doesn't drive the church. I'm already way behind, but... Hopefully you're feeling me right there. Jesus commends his church, and we can receive that commendation. Hey, a church that's still here, still enduring, still teaching. Yeah, maybe you lost some people. Yeah, maybe you're not as big as other churches down the road, but you're sticking to what Jesus is saying the best you can. You're not being jerks about it. You're not making mountains out of molehills, but the things that are true, the things that are clear in Scripture, we need to be clear on those. The things that are, that are uh, put before us in Scripture, we understand those are what Jesus is telling us. We stick to those, and as you bear up with those and don't bear up with false teaching, that is a point of commendation for us. So Ephesus was good at this, okay? Ephesus as a church was good at this, but... Sheer doctrinal resolve is not enough. It's insufficient and it's incomplete. Doctrinal resolve is great. That's probably why I just went longer on it than I thought I was going to go. It is necessary. I was never really uh, very good at school. I didn't read books, extra books. Y'all starting a book club? I would have thought you're crazy. Extra books on top of the books that you're told to read in school? I want to graduate so I don't ever have to read a book again. And some of you might be surprised by that because I read books and I started a book club and I've got bookshelves at that. I'm always giving away books. Why? Because of this. I don't care about math. I don't care about engineering or architecture. I mean, I'm glad people read books for that stuff. I read not because I'm born as a bookworm is what I'm trying to tell you. I read because I'm like, what did Jesus say? And I want us to do that well. So doctrine is important, but left alone, it is insufficient and is incomplete. It's not enough, and because it's not enough, we end up lacking 
in work. So now Jesus corrects, not because doctrinal focus is wrong, but because it's not enough by itself. Now I want to remind you that as Jesus moves into this paragraph of correction, of rebuke for the church at Ephesus, he is, he is delivering this message to a church with a strong spiritual pedigree. Let us remind ourselves how Ephesus got started. Paul visited there. Now, could you imagine if on our church banquet anniversary, we're like, remember when the Apostle Paul had lunch with us at our first fellowship meal? That'd be crazy to us, but Ephesus can literally go, yeah, remember? Paul visited there. You can go to Acts 18 for that. When he was on his way from Corinth to Jerusalem, Ephesus was one of his stops. This is about uh, 50 AD, 52 AD. Do you remember Priscilla and Aquila? Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there to disciple Apollos, who was this new dynamic teacher. He was great, and he had a lot of things right, but some things were off. And Paul's like, I need to move on. But Priscilla and Aquila, spend time with them, and they'll correct you. They'll get you teaching in line with what you're supposed to teach. Now, Apollos taught some things that were off. Did he get kicked out? No, he got discipled. What's the difference between him and the false apostles? The false apostles are not correctable. It doesn't matter how many verses you show them, how many people surround them. They want to teach what they want to teach because there's something in it for them. Apollos is like, oh, I got that wrong. How does he know he got that wrong? Because Priscilla and Aquila have a Bible in their hands, which is the Old Testament. And so Apollos is there with them. Priscilla and Aquila were there with them. On Paul's next missionary journey, he spent time there again. Three years this time in Acts 20. Three years they benefited from the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Then when he departed around 57 AD, it was a tearful moment. Some of you might remember that in Acts chapter 20. There's tears, there's hugging, and they know they're probably never going to see him again. And then when Paul uh, was in prison the first time, he sent a letter to Rome, and we have that. It's called the book of Ephesians. They already have one of the 27 books in the New Testament canon is theirs. It got to them first, of course, shared around the world, and 2,000 plus years later, we still study it and learn from it as scripture. But it's to that church. After he was released from prison, Paul decided to put someone in charge at Ephesus, and he sends Timothy. It's like, can somebody else get a turn? They get Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, Paul, Timothy. They get a letter written to them. Ephesus is a strong church. They've got doctrine for days. They've been taught well. They've been discipled well. They have a tremendous preacher in Timothy. How do I know he was tremendous? Because most of the verses I use to teach preachers how to preach is from First and Second Timothy. And if Timothy stuck with that stuff, he, they got awesome teaching, even if he was timid or quiet or however he might have been personally. So Ephesus has all the spiritual pedigree, but they're in danger, which means it doesn't matter how you started if you don't see it through to the end. Doctrinal clarity is great. If they didn't have that, he would have rebuked them for it. But he commends them for it. They have that, but it's not enough, and they won't last with just that. They need love. So while they were discerning and not tolerating false teachers, they were seriously lacking love. Look at verses 4 through 6. But 
I have this against you. Now, this doesn't erase verses 2 to 3. That's still true, but then there's also this. Don't forget the things I commended, but here's the correction. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's the correction. Jesus says they won't continue to endure as a church without love. He says they've abandoned their first love. Now, first could mean priority. Of all the loves you have in your life, this one used to be first. And now something else took first, and this is like second. Or it could mean chronologically. In 1988, you used to love Jesus like this, and now... In 2023, you love Jesus like this. Get back to the first one, chronological. Both of them could be true, but I think the second one is what's true. And the reason why is because of verse 5. When he says in verse 5, remember, that's thinking back chronologically, right? Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So I think he's calling them to reflect on those days when Paul was with them, when Timothy was among them, when, when Apollos was being discipled by Priscilla and Aquila, remember those days? Your love was intact. You had doctrinal clarity, but it was, it was backed by this love, love of God, love of Christ, love for God, love for each other. And you've fallen from that. You've kept the doctrinal clarity, great, but you've fallen from the love, peace. So, He says that the way to get back to this place from which they've fallen is to repent, to change. Repent is not, I'm sorry. Repent is life change, to turn around. And he's telling them that works without love is sin. Why do I say works? Remember when when he commended them for their doctrinal clarity? He said, I know your works and your toil. You don't tolerate false teachers. That's a work. That, that's something we do because God has changed our lives and one of those works that we do is doctrinal clarity. But then there's other works that they left behind. That's why he tells them to return to those works that they did at first. It's not that they don't do any works at all. They do some stuff that's good. But they left other things off and that's the danger. Works without love is sin. Doctrinal clarity without love is sin. Even if your doctrine is correct. Now, I can blast the false teachers, but do I, am I doing that in love? Or am I doing that out of jealousy that their churches are bigger, something like that? That would be a problem. When we correct each other, are we supposed to correct each other? Yes, of course we're supposed to correct each other, but there's a right way to do it. That's love. And love doesn't just drive doctrinal clarity. It drives other things that they're not doing at all. So it's a, they've got the doctrinal work. That's great, but there's no love behind it. And then there's other works that they're just not doing at all because of the lack of love. And then he doesn't get specific. And maybe we wish he would. You're not doing A, B, and C. Oh, and then we can work it into our church calendar. Let's make sure we A, B, and C. Follow the checklist, and then we'll endure it to the end. But then wouldn't that miss the point? Because you can move through a checklist without love. So I think he he leaves it blank because he's like, if you return to love, love will sort of almost automatically propel the things that you're not doing anymore that you used to do. 
Love is the motivation. Love has to drive it. Now, I need to make this clear as well. A call to works doesn't mean that your salvation is based on works. It just means that salvation is showing up in real life. You say you're saved. Well then, where is it? Show it to me, as James said, right? So here, I don't, I, I'm going to move forward, but I want to recommend a book by J.C. Ryle. It's an old book, and it's simply called Holiness. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Go read that and allow him to take you to school in Scripture and show you why we're not supposed to say, I'm saved by grace, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. It's, I'm saved by grace, therefore I'm supposed to pursue holiness, actually. And what John is getting at here in this Uh, what Jesus is getting at through John here is that love is supposed to motivate all of our doing, all of our works. Without that, our works are incomplete. Without that, we won't be doing other things that we're supposed to be doing. All of this danger is due to this loss of love that they had started out with. Now, I think we might be tempted to sort of resent the fact that when I first got saved, I was all excited and everything was up here and I was zealous. And then after a while, I kind of teetered off and we kind of resent the fact that it's like, yeah. And then we could even get jaded when somebody gets saved and they get baptized. And they get, they're going, you know, a mile, a mile a minute for Jesus. In the back of our minds, we could be tempted to be like, yeah, honeymoon period. Ha <laughs> honeymoon period. The call is not for that person to cool off. The, person, the call is for you to get back to that. And we shouldn't resent the fact that we used to do things more than we do now because that's the key for them to get back. Jesus' strategy for them is not to sit and contemplate and try to come up with, like he's a passive-aggressive leader. I want you to figure it out. Like when you ask your spouse what's wrong and they're like, you need to figure it out. That's what's wrong. You can't even figure it out. It's like, help the person out, right? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't tell them, I need you to sit there and guess. He tells them to go back down memory lane, and remember when you first started out the things that you did. I don't know what they were for Ephesus. Maybe they had prayer meetings and they don't pray anymore. Maybe they used to do evangelism and they don't evangelize anymore. You know, whatever it was that, they, they, that their love spilled out in certain ways back then, and now they don't. He's telling them, remember those days and get back to it. You did it before, do it again. I hope I'm not alone in my estimation that CFC has grown in love. As I, as I study this epistle, uh, this letter, not epistle, this mini letter message to the church in Ephesus, uh, it seems to me like maybe um, CFC has kind of gone in the other direction where we're, I think, more mature now than we've been in the past. Uh, I think as we look back, we're like, yeah, we did these things, but now we do these things. I, I don't, I mean, unless I'm wrong, but I think as we look back, we don't go, oh, we did these things, we just don't do them anymore. I think we do certain things better. I think we've added to the things that we've done. I think we maybe do some better things than we did before. But we do get to look back and test ourselves against this sort of trajectory so that if it ever goes like this, we can look back and go, man, remember we had prayer meetings? Remember we had fellowship meals? And we laughed and we enjoyed it? Why does nobody show up anymore? You know, we, if we get to a point, we can look back and go, yeah, we did these things, and we can check ourselves against our past heights, which is Jesus' strategy here. So it's good to sort of keep a log of how the church has been doing for a collective memory to stay intact of where the church has been. 
the things that have been great because we want to make sure we don't lose them and we want to make sure that it's driven by love. And we can personalize this as well. I think as a church, we need to think of it as a group. But as individuals, we can challenge ourselves too. Are we slacking in ways today that we didn't before? We still do some things, but love doesn't necessarily drive it. I do it just out of sheer duty. And that loss of love maybe prompts us to stop doing other things that we used to do. So we ask the Lord to guide us in it. We can pray and talk to others about Christ. We can read the Bible like we used to. We can make every effort to get together with other believers for mutual encouragement like we used to. We serve the church with joy like we used to. Hopefully even better than we used to. Now he gives them a warning. If you don't, I'll remove the lampstand from its place. The question there is, do some churches start out strong and then flicker out? Yeah, I think so. Now remember, the lampstand is not an individual Christian. The lampstand is the group, the church. Now, can you imagine a church where some of the members prove to actually be unbelievers? They're they're, they're into false doctrine, and then you go to correct them. They don't want to correct it, but there's enough of them to sort of be a core of the group. And then you've got other believers that stand up against it, but they just, there's not enough of them. They, they don't have enough clout. They don't know how to argue well or whatever the case may be. And they just kind of start seeing themselves out. And then maybe there's a third group of believers, but they're weak. And they don't know how to discern enough. They can't test it well enough. And they don't know whether they should leave or not. And then that first group takes over the church. Now, this has happened not just with individual churches, but with whole denominations. This has happened and is happening. So when Jesus says, hey, I'll take the lampstand away, does that mean that in the beginning they weren't a real church? No, I think you could start off as one and then lose it. That's, I, I, think, I think that's what we see here because it's a collective group. I was reading one commentator and said, hey, this ended up being true because today that church is not there. Nothing's there. It's ruin. Now that author was saying the church failed and so Jesus took the lampstand. I don't know if that's true. What happened there? I don't know. I didn't do my research, but did something happen where the whole community was gone? How can you have a church if the whole community is gone? It's not necessarily the church's fault. The community doesn't exist, okay? But I think when Jesus says, I'll remove the lampstand, I think that's serious. I don't think that's Christians can lose their salvations. I think it's speaking to the fact that churches are a mix of real believers, true believers, and weak believers. The wrong mix will take the church in the wrong direction. The wrong people in charge will leave the church in the wrong direction. And fast forward 40 years, there's about a 40-year gap between when this church was born, Ephesus, a 40-year distance between when when they started out and when they're getting this message in Revelation. 40 years is a lot of change. It could be. And I think it's a real warning that the light can go out. He ends by returning to their commendation about sound teaching in verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We can get in a, he brings up the Nicolaitans in another letter to another church, and we'll, get, we'll unpack that the best we can at another time. But they're false teachers. So he's returning to this idea that, hey, remember the good news I gave you? That's still true. And that's a good strategy. If you ever need to give somebody a review, here's some good stuff. Here's some stuff I need you to work on, but don't forget the good stuff. I love it. I appreciate that. 
But I don't think it's just tactful of Jesus to say it. I think he's reminding us that, hey, the sound teaching stuff is not in opposition to love. It's not like you have to choose between a church that's loving and a church that's doctrinally sound. If they're doctrinally sound, they're kind of jerks. If they're loving, they got no doctrine. Oh, maybe I could go to this one in the morning and this one in the night. I get love and works. Love and doctrine. It should be together in one church. So he's reminding them, don't leave behind the stuff I told you was good. It is not the fault of the teachers in the church or having sound doctrine in the church that saps love. If somebody, if you're thinking about going to seminary, going to ministry, and somebody tells you, if you go to seminary, they're just going to put, chalk your head full of knowledge and your heart's going to dry up. Your head's going to fill up and your heart's going to dry up. Hey, if your heart dries up, that's your fault. The knowledge that goes in should make you love God more. That's like, I'm going to marry this woman, but if I find out too much about her, I'm not going to love her very much. I'm just going to kind of marry her blind and try to spend as little time with her as possible because if I find out too much, I'm not going to love her anymore. Does that sound insane? It is. And we don't want to do that in church either. Knowing more makes you love more, not less. You love her in all of her details, in all of her idiosyncrasies. And Jesus loves his church full on like that, and we're to love Jesus full on like that, not by pretending we don't know things, but hearing, listening to what he has to say. And that's how he ends his charge to the churches. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this particular ending reminds us that for a church to endure, we need to endure in sound teaching, but with love driving all our works. Sound teaching, but with love driving all of our works. Not just the teaching, but everything we do. Love driving it. In order for a church to endure, we endure in sound teaching, but with love driving all our works. And he concludes with this call. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. This applies to all churches. The church in Itasca is to hear what the Spirit says to Ephesus. It's a call to be heeded. This is like when Jesus taught the parable of the sower and the soils. Do you have ears to hear or not? He tells them. If you have ears to hear, you'll understand this parable. If you don't have ears to hear, you'll be like, that was a weird parable, and you'll just continue living life like I didn't say anything. And that difference is everything for being ready for the end. Hearing and heeding is conquering. Conquering is not crawl your way into some high political offices so you can take over the state. Conquering is do what Jesus said. Hold on to doctrinal clarity and love. Love God, love people, love each other. That is how you conquer. Not with swords, but with this sword right here. This is how the church conquers. We endure to the end because we obey faithfully. We hold to his doctrinal teaching and we allow love to drive all of our works. Why does he end with that promise of the tree of life? He's taking you back to the garden. Remember the tree of life in the garden? When they sinned, they were blocked from that tree. You can't have my presence. You can't have eternal life. Now, other commentators will say in the temple, which is God's new garden, if you ever read through, like, why, were they, why did they have pomegranates and jewels and stuff? Go back to the garden in Genesis, and you'll see the jewels there, and you'll see the plants there. You'll see the foliage there. Well, where's the tree? If this is the temple, and it's God's new presence, sort of new garden in the world, where's the tree? The lampstand. The lampstand is the tree. I might be like, I thought the tree meant life, and the lampstand meant light. Yeah, have you read 
other stuff from John? If this is the same John, have you read his other stuff? Light is life, and death is darkness. And so God's presence that we couldn't have in the Garden of Eden, another Adam came to bring us back into access with God, to have that life. So the tree, the lampstand, light, life, God's presence in the midst of darkness all comes into one particular image here when he holds out this promise. The church that endures to the end is a church that understands that they have access to to God through Jesus Christ. And they don't shape Jesus into something else, some other false idol, and follow another way. I stay at the center. I hold them in my hands. And if you endure to the end, you will conquer. And you will never be barred from God's presence and the eternal life that he grants. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for uh, this message. We pray that insofar as it is clear to us um, that we will respond to it with grace that you give us. We don't have our own energy to do it, but we need you to do it, Father. So as we close in this song, would you encourage us to live in response to it? Would you encourage us to live rightly? to hold to truth, uh, but with love behind that truth, underneath it, and propelling all the other works that we're supposed to do as Christians, as your church. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?